Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette and on this podcast we explore anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. I want to wish you a very happy uh, 2022. Happy New Year. I can hardly believe it. Still not used to writing that 22. <laughs> uh, but uh, I wanted to, to release this episode sort of in between here before we launch um, season three, which I'm planning to do at the end of the month, at the end of January. I've already recorded some. I've uh, scheduled and recorded some interviews. I'm so excited for season three. It's going to be really, really great. And uh, I want to, again, just express my appreciation uh, for you all listening, for sharing the podcast, for leaving reviews. It's, it's, it's so wonderful and exciting to watch the podcast grow. So I just want to say how much I appreciate that. But I wanted to share um, this this extra bonus episode here, which is actually a I'm taking an episode from a uh, podcast series I did uh, back at the start of quarantine in 2020. Remember that uh, a, a podcast called On Fairy Stories, which you can still find anywhere you're listening to your podcast. But I want to uh, re-release this episode on Tolkien's concept of the eucatastrophe. And if you don't know what that is, uh, don't worry, because that's what this episode is all about. And, uh, you know, as everybody does their word of the year and their saint of the year and all these things, if you haven't picked a word yet, eucatastrophe might be a good one to pick. So that's what today's podcast is going to be all about. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a beautiful, uh, profound concept, and it's really fascinating to see how this concept of eucatastrophe plays out in literature in films and uh, also in your own life. Uh, I think that all of us have uh, amazing eucatastrophes in our life. So I hope that this will inspire you and, uh, and help you as you sort of organize your thoughts for the new year. I'm feeling, you know, as, as I always do in January to touch base with me again in March, but <laughs> I'm feeling very, very optimistic and organized and excited uh, for my goals for the new year. I really like New Year's. I know some people feel the pressure. They don't like resolutions, but I'm all about fresh starts and just psychologically, it really helps me to have that kind of breaking point in the year and say, okay, if things haven't been going the way I want, now's your chance. You can start fresh. Uh, One of the big goals I'm doing, which is also going to be my recommendation here, is the Thousand Hours Outside Challenge, which if you follow me on Instagram, I share, uh, I, I often share from the, from their Instagram page. If you look them up, um, I think it's a great movement. Um, there's also a podcast and a website and an app where you can track the hours, but the whole concept, uh, it, it's really oriented toward children and families, but it's for anybody can do it, individuals, whatever. Um, but it's really this idea that we spend so much time today uh, inside and especially on screens. And you think about how much kids are on screens and and we ourselves are on screens. We're glued to these phones in our hands and everything like that. And uh, 
fresh air and the uh, sort of spontaneous experiences that happen in nature are so important. And um, if you're like me, you kind of need that extra nudge uh, sometimes just to get outside. And I, it's, it's, it can be a struggle. I mean, I live on a farm. I have, I have to go outside <laughs> at least a certain amount every single day. And I still have a hard time um, meeting sort of the, the uh, quote unquote, our requirements. Um, so I need that little extra nudge, you know, especially with the baby or something like that. It's certainly easier uh, to, to stay inside a lot of the times. And when the weather was not quite as cold, uh, we would, you know, just throw a blanket outside and she could watch the trees and the birds and, you know, just hear, hear the sounds of nature and just breathe that fresh air and um, I think that's so important. It's important to me. It really helps my mood. Um, I know a lot of stay-at-home moms kind of struggle. Um, it can be it can be lonely. It can be the days can be long sometimes. Um, it's it's hard to maintain your energy with this this uh, this little child or children if you have more than one child. Um, and especially now that our baby is getting so active and. Uh, she's crawling away from me the second I put her on the ground and she really needs a lot of engagement. My my introverted, the introverted part of my heart struggles a little bit sometimes when I just want to read a book or something. Uh, so that time getting outside, it can be such a, a mood resetter for me, um, for her. So I'm just, I'm really trying to uh, stick to that challenge. Um, there's snow on the ground here right now. Very exciting. I'm loving it. I'm invigorated by it. Uh, I hope that whatever weather you like, it, 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 that's what it is where you are. Um, and uh, yeah, I wish you all good things in 2022. Uh, I'll stop rambling now, but remember to, uh, you can stay in touch with me uh, on Instagram at Born of Wonder and uh, go to the website. And I really want to encourage you, if you do want to stay in the loop, to sign up for my newsletter. I'm going to try to be a little more um, organized with that and uh, purposeful about sending that out, sending updates, and also you know, just providing you with hopefully some good information about good good things to read, good things to listen to, um, my thoughts about uh, about how the podcast is going. Um, and if you have any ideas, I, I sort of did a, a, a poll on, on Instagram, um, opened it up to, to see what topics people wanted to, to uh, hear about in the coming season. And I got a lot of ideas and um, I'm going to follow through on a lot of a lot of those things that people suggested. So um, looking forward to, to this season, um, to, to, uh, continuing to explore these topics that inspire wonder and awe. And, uh, and I wish you a very, very happy start to the new year. So without further ado, here's this bonus episode taken from my podcast on fairy stories, all about Tolkien's concept of the eucatastrophe. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Just as Mary Poppins gave us supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, the perfect word for when you don't know what to say, Tolkien gives us eucatastrophe, a word to capture the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, the mark of all fairy tales. Tolkien coined the term when he was grappling with the power of story and myth. He started asking what made a good fairy tale not just enjoyable or aesthetically stimulating, but also deeply moving. What did all good stories have in common? 
I'm going to quote here from On Fairy Stories. He says, Eucatastrophe is a sudden and miraculous grace. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies universal final defeat, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. When thinking of real-world examples of eucatastrophe, Tolkien, a devout Roman Catholic, remembered the story of a miraculous healing of a very sick boy at the Marian Shrine in Lourdes in 1927. The boy was thought to be near death, there was no cure, and then, miraculously, joyously, he is cured. The moment when all hope is lost, there is a turn, and remember, conversion literally means to turn. Uh, so eucatastrophe is a moment of return, a stunning reconciliation, and the poignancy is only there because of the darkness that preceded it. Another quote here from Tolkien. All of a sudden, I realized what it was, the very thing I have been trying to write about and explain, the sudden turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. So here Tolkien is sort of summarizing what I guess you could say is the uh, thesis of this podcast, which is that fairy tales, um, although they may seem uh, sort of not relevant to our lives, otherworldly, maybe just for children, uh, in reality, they are speaking to truth, capital T truth here. Uh, Eucatastrophe defines the most poignant moments in Lord of the Rings. If you think about Gandalf's resurrection and transfiguration into Gandalf the White, Frodo and Sam's rescue from Mount Doom um, by the Golden Eagles when everything seems lost, and of course, the ultimate destruction of the ring and Aragorn's crowning as the rightful king. The years and years of Sauron's successful reign and the many deaths, sorrows, and sufferings experienced by the Fellowship make these moments of deliverance deeply moving. In Tolkien's definition, it is really important to understand the Felix Culpa narrative, the fortunate fall, the reality that all things can be made right again. There is nothing that will not be rectified, though much of earthly life is experienced as the long defeat. Tolkien knew the power of story. He famously helped to convert C.S. Lewis with his argument that Christianity is a true myth, and he also knew that the poignant moments in truly good stories can help us better enter into the real story. The thing about eucatastrophe is it's almost always surprising. The redemptive power of story flips earthly logic on its head, it redeems suffering, redeems the poor, the lonely, the forgotten, and it promises, quote, to pierce you with a joy that brings tears. So you think about the power that story has to make you see um, your own world, your own life in sort of a more fantastical way. Here's a quote um, from C.S. Lewis um, from On Stories and Other Essays on Literature. He wrote, he does not despise real woods because he has read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. So you think about um, all these great stories that teach us about that moment of eucatastrophe, that surprising, beautiful, joyous turn. And I know, I guarantee that you can find those moments in your own life where something so surprisingly wonderful, something so seemingly impossible has happened. And reading these stories can help you better enter into those moments and recognize them uh, in, in your own life. 
I can't imagine that Tolkien, the philologist, did not purposely link the two words eucatastrophe and Eucharist with the Greek eu meaning well. Um, to quote Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well and all shall be well. The Eucharist for Catholics is the true and real presence of Christ created out of the simple ingredients of wine and bread. The eucatastrophe is that moment of consecration, the shocking, scandalizing, joyful return of the Lord in this world, in this time. And that's the part of the story that should bring tears to people's eyes. It's also the part that is so unbelievable to most people because, I mean, this is not new. Think about uh, the reaction to Jesus when he says this teaching in John 6. This is a hard teaching. It's hard to engage with you catastrophe be in our own lives because it's so fantastical <laughs> um but it's also so true and those two things can exist simultaneously somehow and that's sort of the beauty of fairy stories is it lets um, the truth and the fantastic nature of the story exist simultaneously Eucatastrophe is likely an ingredient in all your favorite books and movies. It's that moment in the story when the music swells, the disaster is averted, the underdog triumphs, the sacrifice is rewarded, and the suffering is not in vain. I think we are all moved by these moments because as Tolkien knew, they are simply true. Um, they are the redemptive moments of our human experience. And I think the fact that we are read, often read, um, fairy tales as children um, sort of sets up our minds uh, to receive this wisdom in later life, to sort of receive the eucatastrophe of our own lives. And you think about the familiar nature, we've talked about this before on the podcast, the familiar nature of myths and legend, how it sort of feels like an odd memory, even stories you haven't heard before. There's a certain rhythm to them. Um, that you recognize that seems familiar. And I think that part of it is because many of us were read these stories as children, read stories like them, um, but also that sort of in a deep, visceral, evolutionary, biological, spiritual way, our minds are set up to receive this kind of story. And um, it reminded me of this great quote. Uh, you may, the first time I heard it was in uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women when Joe is on the beach with Beth and she's reading from a book to her and she reads the passage and goes, how great is that? And it's, um, it's from, uh, I learned, it's George Eliot from The Mill on the Floss. And this is the quote. We could never have loved the earth so well if we had no childhood in it. If it were not the earth where the same flowers come up again every spring that we used to gather with our tiny fingers. What novelty is worth that sweet monotony where everything is known and loved because it is known. So to echo Joe there, how great is that? <laughs> so beautiful. What novelty is worth that sweet monotony where everything is known and loved because it is known? And I think that fairy tales, myths, um, the idea of eucatastrophe speaks to that sort of childhood-like recurrence, um, that sweet monotony where we sort of know the happy ending. We know, we know what's going to happen. And no novelty is worth that. No novelty is better than that recurring true story. Uh, just another quote here, this time from Lewis, um, talking again about the joy of what, um, the joy that is distinctive about eucatastrophe. It's different than just happiness. It's, it's more acute than that. Um, and this is from his book, Surprised by Joy. 
uh, Lewis writes, joy is distinct not only from pleasure in general, but even from aesthetic pleasure. It must have the stab, the pang, the inconsolable longing. So maybe it sounds strange to equate joy with inconsolable longing, but I think if we really think about it, it makes a lot of sense. If you think about when you look at a beautiful sunset, um, sort of Wordsworth, Wordsworthian sublime moments, um, there's sort of a sadness behind it, but it's a good sadness. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, it's sort of like when I talked about Selkie stories in episode one, how I said, you know, they're really sad stories, but the good kind of sad. And I think that inconsolable longing and that capital J joy are really linked and they're especially linked uh, with poignancy uh, in fairy stories. I really believe that. So some examples of eucatastrophe, um, most famously, how about the prince arriving to uh, break Sleeping Beauty's curse after 100 years, waking her up with a kiss, uh, similar events in Snow White, of course, um, something more modern, you think of the princess bride, uh, Wesley isn't dead after all, and he wasn't killed by the dread pirate Roberts, in fact, uh, he's come back in disguise to find his true love. Death cannot stop true love, all it can do is delay it for a while. So Tolkien's uh, concept of eucatastrophe is really similar to uh, peripatia, peripatia, sorry, there's no way I'm going to consistently pronounce that correctly, but peripatia is a sudden or unexpected reversal of circumstances uh, or a situation in a literary wor work. And the difference here is that it's not necessarily joyful. It could be for good or for ill. And related to peripatia is another um, hard to pronounce concept, concept uh, anagnorisis, and that's a change from ignorance to knowledge. Uh, according to Aristotle, peripatia, along with discovery, is the most effective when it comes to drama, especially in tragedies. And for Aristotle, pity and fear were the distinctive qualities of tragedies, and you reached pity and fear um, by peripatia. And this is quoting Aristotle, the finest form of discovery is one attended by peripatia, like that which goes with the discovery in Oedipus. And again, peripatia, a sudden or unexpected reversal of circumstances. Uh, and then, so peripatia, though, is often in conjunction with anagnorisis. So anagnorisis, again, is going from ignorance to knowledge. So you can see that Oedipus would have both anagnorisis and peripatia, a reversal of circumstances and a, um, a moment going from ignorance to knowledge, realizing you've killed your father and married your mother, uh, and a reversal of circumstances, a uh, successful uh, happy king, and now driven to, dry, uh, to uh, plunge out his own eyes. So um, according to Aristotle, having those two things together is the mark of a superior tragedy. Um, but we also find peripatia and anagnorisis in other places, maybe some that might uh, surprise you, many times in the parables of Jesus, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, for example. So in the prodigal son, the son leaves, realizes what he has done is wrong, and then he comes back, and the father who welcomes him as a lost son, uh, the peripatia, reversal of circumstances, he is lost, now he is found. And uh, both these concepts are often discussed along with Aristotle's concept of catharsis. Another term I'm going to throw into the mix here is deus ex machina. 
a plot device, um, I'm quoting here the definition, whereby a seemingly unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved by an unexpected and unlikely occurrence. Its function can be to resolve an otherwise irresolvable plot situation to surprise the audience, to bring the tale to a happy ending, or act as a comedic device. Uh, one example that's often given is the uh, tragedy of Medea, in which uh, Deus Ex Machina is a dragon-drawn chariot sent down by the sun god, and um, that's how Medea escapes from her husband Jason uh, to the safety of Athens. I guess it's used because this chariot sort of seems kind of out of nowhere, uh, not necessarily alluded to in any other um, parts of the story. So Deus Ex Machina is sort of seen oftentimes as undesirable, a sort of cheap trick, um, because it breaks sort of the rules of the internal logic of the story a lot of times. And also, uh, it just maybe seems like a way to like easily end a story. Um, so often requires a suspension of disbelief. So the author is allowed to just conclude the story with an unlikely ending. Some people have accused Tolkien of using it um, when the Golden Eagles come and rescue Sam and Frodo. Uh, Tolkien was adamant that uh, that was not the case because of the, he viewed this again as eucatastrophe, which is different, he said, than tragedies. Uh, so he would say that the long journey on foot that Sam and Frodo had to undergo was necessary for the poignancy of the moment when they are unexpectedly rescued by the Golden Eagles. So you kind of you know, this makes sense for him as a Catholic. You can't have the good stuff without the suffering beforehand. <laughs> um, so I'm going to quote Tolkien again here, uh, just to sum up again, sort of what how eucatastrophe does combine these other concepts, these other literary devices, but is quite unique in its own way and is especially apt uh, to describe what happens in fairy stories. Quote, it is the mark of a good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart near to or indeed accompanied by tears as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality. So I think that the peculiar quality he's alluding to here is and what makes eucatastrophe different than deus ex machina and uh, peripatia and anagnorisis is that eucatastrophe functions on the belief that we basically live in a fundamentally just world where um, maybe if we can't even though we can't always understand it the uh, arc of the universe bends toward justice bends toward truth and uh, our stories reflect that that the happy ending is not so much unexpected but a reversal of our um, human circumstances, but in a way that reflects the reality of the universe. It's not sort of um, invading uh, the story or sort of becoming, it's not an illogical moment, in other words, that people would claim that some uses of deus ex machina would be. Um, it's completely logical because the logic of the universe bends toward that happy ending and that redemption. A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. A lovely, intriguing line from Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, thought to be one of the last plays he wrote, probably in 1610 or 1611. If you're not familiar with this play, it's really unique in Shakespeare's canon. It's magical and beautiful and whimsical. 
I have such a powerful love for this play. Uh, back in college, I was in a class called Staging Shakespeare, where we were basically put into groups, and for the whole semester, we hyper-rehearsed and engaged with one scene from a Shakespeare play. And the scene that my group did was the trial scene from The Winter's Tale. I played Hermione, the wrongfully accused queen, and it's a very intense scene, and I just have so much uh, intense emotion now associated with this play. Um, for those of you not familiar with the plot, I really encourage you to read it, but basically there's a king named Leontes, and he's married to Hermione. She's pregnant with their second child, and they're having a friend, a fellow king, visit. His name is Polixenes. And depending on how you stage this, Leontes can seem truly mad or um, justifiably suspicious, but he's convinced that Hermione is having an affair with Polixenes, and he starts to wonder if the child she's carrying is even his. He spirals out of control despite her protestations of innocence, and it culminates in this trial scene where he drags her out in public after she has just given birth to their daughter and accuses her in front of the whole kingdom, basically. Um, Hermione's dignified response is now burned in my brain thanks to my staging Shakespeare class. She says, It shall scarce boot me to say not guilty. Mine integrity being counted falsehood shall, as I express it, be so received. But thus, if powers divine behold our human actions as they do, I doubt not then but innocence shall make false accusation blush and tyranny tremble at patience. So those divine powers are called upon. Leontes calls in the oracle, um, which confirms uh, Hermione's innocence. But Leontes refuses to believe it. And uh, just at that moment, seemingly as a result of his denial of the oracle, his son uh, dies. And Hermione drops dead as well in that moment from grief, shock, exhaustion. Um, a lot more happens in the play, uh, including sort of the whole tale of what happens to their daughter, um, Perdita, but that's really all you need to know um, for us to discuss the ending and what it has to do with the idea of eucatastrophe. Um, you may also be familiar with this play from the famous line, exit pursued by a bear. Great line. <laughs> Um, so anyway, as we get to the end of the play, 16 years have passed, and in that time, Leontes has really mourned his actions, and uh, a statue has been made of Hermione. So this noblewoman, who was a friend of, uh, a friend of Hermione's, who really stood up for her and accused the king uh, in front of everybody, uh, Paulina, she, uh, she has sort of overseen the construction of this statue, and she takes uh, Leontes there to see it. And he's looking at this statue and everybody just can't believe how lifelike it is. Um, they're just, and Leontes even, even uh, comments, you know, she looks a little bit older than when she, when she died, you know, I mean, there's some lines here on her face. And uh, Paulina just comments, you know, well, she's supposed to, you know, I wanted it to look like, um, look, look like she was, was living. I wanted this to be so realistic. Um, and then the more he looks at her, you know, her lips, they, they, they almost look like you could kiss them. There's color in them. Um, what's going on here? And uh, here's a line from Leontes. Polina, I want to believe that she lives. No perception of reality could be as blissful as that kind of insanity. And then at this moment, um, a very strange thing happens. Paulina, and again, can't imagine that the um, Pauline illusions aren't there. <laughs> Paulina says, it is required you do awake your faith. Music is struck. 
tis time, descend, be stone no more, approach, strike all that look upon with marvel, come, I'll fill your grave up, stir, nay, come away, bequeath to death your numbness, for from him, dear life, redeems you, you perceive she stirs. And at that moment, slowly, it would seem that the statue of Hermione is coming to life before their very eyes, and Leontes says, she's warm. If this is from your magic spell, your magic should be considered an art as natural as eating. So this sort of shocked, joyful um, reunion happens, and um, in a really sort of sad moment, poignant moment, Hermione's largely quite quiet as Leontes does a lot of the talking, a lot of the begging for forgiveness. Um, their daughter, Perdita, has been restored to them. Um, Perdita is there and uh, touches, you know, touches her, her mother's hand and Hermione looks at her and says, I kept myself going just to see you. Really beautiful line there. Um, so this fantastical ending, what happened? Uh, of course, there is uh, the cynical <laughs> view. Um, which basically says that, you know, Paulina for the 16 years had uh, basically been keeping Hermione um, secretly alive until she thought that Leontes was ready to, um, was worthy of her again. Uh, because it was said of Paulina, quote, I thought she had some great matter there in hand, for she hath privately twice or thrice a day, ever since the death of Hermione, visited that remote house, that remote house where the statue is. Uh, Leontes is so surprised about that, quote, so much wrinkled Hermione. <laughs> and like I said, uh, Paulina just sort of convinces him that um, this is all part of the, quote, Carver's excellence, which makes her look as if she lived now. But then again, there are plenty of reasons to suppose that this truly is a magical moment, a moment of redemption. Uh, because when Hermione and her son both die at the same time, uh, Leontes says, Prithee, bring me to the dead bodies of my queen and son. One grave shall be for both. Upon them shall the causes of their death appear unto our shame perpetual. And there's nothing in the play that questions uh, that Leontes did see both the body of Hermione and his son and that they were both interred and buried and that he visits their grave. Uh, none of that was questioned. So I think that Shakespeare very purposely left this up to the audience. And what do we want to see? Do we want to see the magic or not? And again, to quote Leontes, no perception of reality could be as blissful as that kind of insanity. Uh, and Paulina, it is required you do awake your faith. And uh, I think it's also important to note that the main plot of The Winter's Tale is taken from um, Robert Greene's romance Pandasto, published in 1588, uh, and that the biggest difference, I mean, a lot of it's very, very similar, but the biggest difference is in the ending. Um, the character equivalent to Hermione and Pandasto dies after being accused of, of adultery, and the Leontes uh, equivalent looks back upon what he's done and kills himself. So there is no, none, none of this happens. There's no statue. There's no resurrection. There is no uh, family reunification. So um, that's a huge difference that happens there. So what does this have to do with catastrophe? Why am I bringing up this play? Well, I think that this ending, how you view it, how you read it, can really show something about your own beliefs and how you view art and how you view the world. And I think that if we believe in eucatastrophe, we believe that she really did come to life. I think I always thought that she did. 
I think that's the beauty of this moment. I think it's absolutely fantastical. I think that um, sort of those nods of um, cynicism, I guess, are, are given to the audience to say, if you don't want to believe, you're allowed that. There are reasons for you not to believe. But um, here it is happening right in front of you, the fantastic, joyous turn. Hermione is alive again. She's been restored to her family. And uh, we as the audience get to see a miracle happen before our eyes. And it's sort of up to us whether we see it or not. So I hope this uh, podcast episode has um, helped to acquaint you with Tolkien's marvelous concept of the catastrophe and helped maybe you relook at some of your favorite stories and maybe some of the things that have happened in your own life in a new way. I want to end here with a quote from Tolkien from The Two Towers. Uh, and I wish you all the best. I wish you a great week. I wish you lots of eucatastric, fantastic moments this week. <laughs> Um, be merry, we meet again at the turn of the tide. The great storm is coming, but the tide has turned. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. <laughs>